How'd you even sneak into the country? Sneak? No, I... I was invited. I was brought here to... to help your science programs by the CIA. CIA? Yes! Were you brought them here? After the war, it was... it was chaos. But the Americans and the Soviets, they were on the eve of their own war, and they made a play for the most valuable of resources from the Reich. They wanted our minds. What you just heard was a clip from the Amazon original series Hunters, which references a secretive government program called Operation Paperclip that brought Nazi scientists to America after World War II. Now, as I watched Hunters, I found myself wondering how much of this is real. And after listening to that scene, you may be asking yourself the same question. Well, the answer is more than you think. And that's what this podcast is about. Were scientists from Nazi Germany, the same men who fueled Adolf Hitler's brutal, genocidal war machine, brought to America to advance our work in areas like rocketry, aviation, military technology, and chemical weapons? Yes. Yes, they were. And wait until you find out why and how our government brought them into this country. This is Paperclip, a podcast series funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. My name is Michael Ian Black. I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, I'm a history buff, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Monique Laney. Hi, Monique. Hi. Why don't you give your uh, bona fides? That's what they call them, right? For smart people like you? (laughs) So I am a history professor at Auburn University, and I teach classes in the history of technology, mainly uh, Cold War, that sort of thing. And you wrote a book about some of these Operation Paperclip scientists, did you not? I sure did. It has a long title, so bear with me. It's uh, German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, colon, Making Sense of the Nazi Past During the Civil Rights Era. Over the course of this podcast series, we'll talk about these former Nazis, and even if there is such a thing as a former Nazi, many of whom were living among everyday Americans just like typical suburban dads. We'll talk about who these men were and what they did and how it impacts our lives today. Along the way, we'll discover how some of America's technological achievements and advancements, stuff like the moon landing, military fighter jets, even the invention of the ear thermometer, may never have existed without Operation Paperclip. But like Hunters does, we'll also wrestle with some tough questions, like, can a villain also be a hero? Should we ignore the past if it means creating a better future? And as far as Paperclip goes, did the ends justify the means. So I think, Monique, where I want to begin is just the idea, and it's, I think it's a hard idea for people to wrap their heads around, that at the end of World War II, our very recent arch enemies, the Nazis, were being kind of smuggled out of Germany to keep us safe, uh, supposedly, from the people that we just fought alongside. Is that right? Yeah. So 
That's an interesting way to look at it. it. Essentially, what happens is all the countries involved are really ratcheting up on science and technology. So you see developments in radar, you see developments in nuclear areas, in chemical weapons. And that's really what makes World War II different. Because the Germans obviously have developed something that others don't have, or they might have an advantage over others. So in that context, it just looks like, wow, they have something we need in order to keep our nations safe. That really is an approach that all of the allies and other countries as well take in. Hmm. So I think I understand the, the broad idea. The Germans had stuff that we wanted. Right. Largely, this was technological stuff. That was, this was innovations in warfare. This was industrial innovations. And World War II was being fought on a kind of technological front line as well as the literal front lines. So first of all, where does the name paperclip come from? Well, that, that's actually further down the road. But presumably, when they were identifying people, you know, they were looking at the files and they put paperclips on the files for those they wanted to interrogate further and potentially bring over here. That's the story I've been told. That's about as far as I know. <laughs> so it's, it's as good a story as any. Yeah. But originally, that wasn't uh, the name of the project. Oh, what was the original name? It was Project Overcast. That's, that's a military term, yeah. It's a lot more ominous sounding than paperclip. Who had the idea first that we're going to try to smuggle out these scientists? Because it, like, this sounds like a new idea to me. Like when I think of other wars, I don't think about the Americans keeping the smartest British generals after the Revolutionary War and milking them for their information. Like this seems like a new idea to me. It is a new idea, um, but it wasn't intended as a, we're trying to smuggle them out in a clandestine way, except that, that, of course, that did happen in order to prevent others to get a hold of them, right? The idea of war booty is age old. That's always existed. But the idea of actually bringing what's called intellectual reparations, as opposed to just things or money as a payoff for those who were involved in a war and from those who were defeated. This goes a step further and says, we want basically all your intelligence. We want to know how you did things. And we want the people because they're so essential in having developed it as well. So classically, we think about looting stuff, like you just said, looting treasure, resources, but never looting people. Did every ally know that the other ally was planning on doing this? I think that they did know that everybody was interested, right? That all the countries invested were interested. Um, and they all basically, as soon as they walked into the areas in Germany, went looking so we would find people that we were interested in and we would take them with us or give them the opportunity to come with us. And then later on, the Soviets would come in and they'd be looking for these same people and they'd be gone. Exactly. By the way, that's what happened um, with a lot of the paper clippers. Is that a term that you came up with or, that, or is that how they refer to themselves? Those of us who do this research and talk about it, that that's how we refer to them. So this idea of intellectual reparations has never been entertained before World War II. What about after? Has anything like Operation Paperclip happened in wars since World War II, or was that really the only time? 
So intellectual reparations were really unique to World War II. After World War II, things are happening that make that not necessary anymore. Wars are now being fought usually between uh, scientific and technological giants and countries that really don't have those same capacities. Think Vietnam War, for example. You have the main focus now is on Soviet weapons. So that's what we want to attain for future battles. And then after Paperclip, we start having immigration policies that will attract scientists and engineers. So that's a, a different way of bringing in the same kind of intellect and know-how. I guess I understand, broadly speaking, like we wanted smart Germans. We wanted German scientists. But what are those specific areas? What, what did we feel like they had that we needed? The first thing was nuclear there was a fear that the Germans had already developed or were very close to developing a nuclear weapon, which turned out not to be true, but that was a big fear, right? There was also awareness of the so-called vengeance or wonder weapons that Hitler had, the V1 and the V2 rockets, right? So the V2 is a rocket, the V1 is a a buzz bomb, so to speak. What's the difference between a buzz bomb and a rocket, other than they both have really cool names? <laughs> yeah, so a, a rocket obviously is propelled very differently than a buzz bomb. <laughs> well, one of the... One of them's like a jet, right? And one of them's a rocket? Yeah, that's that would be a way to, to explain it, the difference. Okay, so I guess it's the difference between like a 747 and the space shuttle or something. The space shuttle would be more like the 747. Oh, <laughs> I don't think... The shuttle itself doesn't have a rocket. It, it goes up on a rocket. Yeah. Then, uh, then that was a terrible example. The difference between a commercial airliner and a rocket to the moon. How about there that? There you go. Perfect. Good. You're going to learn very quickly that my scientific knowledge is extremely limited and my historical knowledge, which is why I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> my technological knowledge is not that strong either. So we'll see where this takes us. <laughs> you mentioned the V1 and the V2. These kind of futuristic weapons. What was the V2 exactly? I know it was a rocket powered missile. Who was it being used against? And who figured this out? It is basically our very first ballistic rocket, ballistic missile in the world. And it's the first rocket that's able to reach space and to go long distance. It was initialized because the German army had found a group of rocketeers who were kind of tinkering with rockets in, late in the 30s. And so once the military realized what might come out of this, they started sponsoring it, making it a secret project, obviously, for the military, putting a lot of funds into it and trying to make it into something viable. And so Werner von Braun is the big name here. He becomes the top person who, who is leading the whole project. He is essentially, for all intents and purposes, a, a type of genius because he has not just the technical skills and the science uh, behind him. He's also an extremely good manager. And so he can pull the people together in order to create the V2 rocket. And that's actually not its technical name is A4 of all things. But V stands for uh, Vergeltung, which means vengeance. So it's the vengeance weapon. Wow. It was used towards the end of the war. It really wasn't ready yet. This is Hitler, you know, in his last stance trying to uh, fight to the bitter end, has this thing mass produced and sent towards London and Antwerp. Those are the areas that were the hardest hit by the V2s. So even though this is state of the art, they really didn't help Hitler and it didn't help in this war. 
The guidance wasn't good. They often didn't hit London at all. However, it was a technology that nobody else had. And that's what made it extremely interesting to everybody else. Oh, wow. I had no idea. And that name you mentioned, Werner von Braun, he's one of the Nazis and hunters, by the way. That's probably the most prominent name maybe in all of early rocketry. And that's a name we're going to keep returning to again and again throughout this series because he's the best known of the scientists who comes over. And as you said, he's a genius, but he also has his own very complicated history. Yes, indeed. So the areas you were asking about, just to to finish that, is so we had aerodynamics, we have nukes, rocketry, chemical weapons, we have medicine, Radar as well, right? All of these areas were of interest to see where were the Germans at that point, because presumably they had state-of-the-art developments in some of these fields. Or they might have developed something a little bit further than, than, for instance, the Americans or the French or whatever. But we were also at war with Japan, but I don't feel like I've ever heard about any Japanese scientists being brought over after the war. Oh, great question, yeah. So um, so that actually, yeah, that was never really a discussion to bring Japanese scientists over. They were interrogated and American troops would go in and try to get as much information from them as possible. But we, they were not brought in like a paperclip. Do we know why? Were their programs not as advanced as the Germans or was there something else at play? That's a good question. I mean, I know you might be thinking about racism, but... (laughs) I'm always thinking about racism, Monique. Yeah, but it has to do with racism as well. But first of all, um, the Americans actually didn't know as much about Japanese science and, and, and technical developments as they knew about the Germans, right? The connection hadn't been there quite in the same way as it had been to Germany before the war. Um, Second of all, Japan, they weren't fighting over Japan with allies, right? So Germany, you had all the allies going for the scientists and engineers, um, whereas in Japan, that wasn't the case, right? And then thirdly, and that's where the racism comes in, but it was more of a consideration that bringing them here to the United States might cause racist reactions. That was the argument, So those are three kind of reasons why we didn't see Japanese coming here. Like uh, like there was no paperclip for Japan. Did we know while the war was being conducted who it was on the German side that we were going to be interested in? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we knew like the top guys, but did we have a good sense of the other sort of mid-level scientists and engineers that we would be chasing? Was our intelligence good enough to to identify those people? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I mean, so what you have to imagine when you think about the science world and the technology world, essentially these people all know about each other even today, right? I mean, they essentially, they know know who the people are that they're interested in. Before World War II, for sure, people were very well connected across the pond. So between scientists at universities and engineers, as well as people working in industry, they put together lists. And this was a government effort basically asking for these lists that then could be used in order to track down people in Germany. And that's how it unfolded. They essentially had people from industry and from academia embedded with the troops in order to help identify and interrogate then um, at, at the end. Oh, I see. So we would ask an aerodynamic engineer from America to go over with the troops to talk to their aerodynamic engineers and and be able to identify 
people that we would want from those conversations. Because you couldn't expect Gomer Pyle or G.I. Joe, random soldier, to know what to ask. Is that right? That is correct. You also had scientists who were already enlisted, and one of the most famous uh, or most oddball situations, if you will, was that um, H.S. Tian, um, who later becomes the father of rocketry in China, was in the U.S. Uh, Army at the time and was helping out with this particular. Really? So here we, yeah, so here we have, you know, basically a former student uh, from China ending up with the troops going over there interrogating Germans. And then later, H.S. Tian is kicked out of the United States, and he ends up very bitter about all that and is the father of rocketry in China. Um, that's a whole other story. Wow, but that's wild and and gives me some idea of the kind of international scope that you were referring to. And then to think about how one nation's policies would then affect larger geopolitical uh, implications with their programs. That's really interesting. So we have the the kind of the rocket technology that we're interested in. We have maybe some industrial things that we're interested in. And I understand why we would view all of that as potentially appealing. The roadblock that I think I come up against and probably a lot of people would come up against is the fact that these are, in a lot of cases, brilliant minds, but they're also Nazis. And we're fighting a war against Nazis, this is a different kind of enemy than we fought before. Were there people in the American government waving yellow flags and saying, hey, we might want to think about this for a second? Well, immediately as this starts, as the program starts, there probably wasn't a lot because it was initially a secret military operation. And the idea here was really to keep them here temporarily, to kind of milk them for their knowledge. And initially it was thought as a, a way to fight Japan. But long story short, the knowledge about the fact that they were coming here and that they would be staying here, that develops over the coming two to three years. So initially, we're just bringing them over. We're like, hey, you can help us out to defeat Japan. Japan gets defeated. And then we realize these people still might have a lot to give. And whatever qualms we have about their past, we're just going to kind of sweep under the rug. I mean, the one guy I read about, and I'm just going to give an example. And I think this is, this is from something you wrote. A guy named Kurt Heinrich Debus. Am I pronouncing that? Debus. 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 He was the first director of NASA's Kennedy Space Center. But he was also, and this is the phrase that you used, an ardent Nazi. What is, what's the difference between a run-of-the-mill Nazi and an ardent Nazi? And by the way, I'm pretty sure ardent Nazi is a really, really bad Nazi. <laughs> so how do we overlook that? Um, okay, wow, you've just uh, addressed a lot of things. Big can of worms here. So uh, deciding what makes someone an ardent Nazi versus just a Nazi or even a good Nazi, which apparently that's a term as well. Not a term you're going to be hearing from me, I can pretty much guarantee. It, it was used. I'm sure. One way would be to say, you know, that somebody was loyal to the Nazi party, and that's probably what most people think of as a good Nazi. But it was also used um, in popular culture, often referring to someone who was maybe part of the regime, but still compassionate towards its victims. 
And then in the context of paperclip, I think it was used in order to differentiate them from so-called ardent Nazis. So you have the good Nazis, the people we brought here, who, who are going to help us during the Cold War, versus the so-called ardent Nazis, someone who was hard and fast ideologically behind the whole system, not just a minor card-carrying member of the Nazi party, um, because that in itself doesn't really tell you very much. Um, just because somebody was a party member doesn't really tell you that they were ideologically supportive. Right, because during that era, if you wanted to advance in your career or maybe even just kind of survive, you needed to be a party member. Is that right? In some cases, yeah. And even if it wasn't with the party, there were certain organizations that you needed to join to get a job, essentially, right, in order to stay there, yeah. That's one part of it. So again, the initial idea is bringing them over temporarily. Then the next phase, within just a year or two, it becomes about denial. And that is really heavy. And we can't underestimate how much the military, at least the War Department, thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will, will pick them up and then use them against us. So the, the logic here is, yeah, maybe we don't like what they did, we don't like the way they thought and what they were part of, but if we can somehow convince ourselves, and I'm, I'm saying this a little bit facetiously, but if we can convince ourselves that, oh, but they've changed their minds and they are now willing to be good Americans, good democratic uh, thinkers, and they're anti-communist from the get-go anyway, right, so that's a good thing then it warrants keeping them here because the threat they would pose otherwise is so much worse. What you just said actually reminds me of an analogy from Hunters that I think sums it up pretty well. There's this exaggerated reenactment where American officials debate Operation Paperclip. And this guy says, imagine you were a soldier and your platoon comes across a loaded Luger belonging to a dead Nazi. Do you bury the gun in the sand because you hated its owner, or do you pick it up and use it against your enemy? And make no mistake about it, these men's minds are weapons. Let's take a break from the podcast to hear what Hunter star Al Pacino had to say in a previous interview about his character, Meyer Offerman. Well, he is a sort of mysterious character, and that can mean a lot of things. There's um, this feeling that he's a private person who's very wealthy and, and lives in a sort of mansion. And he uh, is responsible for a lot of mayhem. And at the same time, he's an educated, well-versed person. At first encounter, he seems a little eccentric and hard to figure where he's coming from. He's not a usual character. I mean, it's not someone you could immediately identify. It's after a while, as you get to know him, hopefully you understand more what's motivating him. And now, back to Paperclip. So as the war's closing, American brass, the big muckety-mucks, are now starting to turn their attention to the Soviets. And they're looking at communist Russia and the Soviet Union as as much as or even a bigger threat than the Nazis. That's just kind of a mind-blowing idea. And I wonder if you can help me understand why. Why 
were we looking at the Soviets as such a grave threat? As opposed to the Nazis. As opposed to the Nazis, yeah. But essentially, the Soviet Union still existed. Nazi Germany did not. That's like the simple answer, right? And so, but even that's a pretty if, good Occam's razor, actually, explanation. I mean, I want to get deeper, but that 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 actually does help me a little bit. But yeah, go a little deeper. And that, and I think that that helps me to understand it best. But the idea that these people that we brought over here, you know, that they are bringing their ideology with them, seems, you know, if you think of the numbers, even even if it's seven hundred plus at the mm-hmm. end, in compared to the mass population of the United States. That's really nothing, right? So the idea that that they could somehow spark uh, ideological shift in the United States. Wait, seems... wait, let me just interrupt you for a second. So meaning that there was some concern among the Americans that this small group, several hundred Nazis, could spark some kind of ideological problem for the Americans. There was some concern there. Yeah, that was one of the arguments of not letting them he- in here. Think of it this way. Let's say that the percentage of people who were actually war criminals amongst those 700, let's say that, I don't know, 70 of them were. That still leaves uh, 630 who weren't war criminals, who had been maybe party members, were, were everyday people you know, who lived in that world. Yes, they, they had contributed to the war machine because that was their job. But at the end of the day, what are we worried about bringing them here? That would be the question then except for the fact that we just fought them. But hey, they're bringing all this knowledge with them, all this future potential with them. That's what people, I think, were weighing. And honestly, it was the War Department primarily that wanted them here. I think I understand that. But help, help me understand contextually, over the last 60, 70 years, growing up the way I did in America, it's easy to reflexively go, oh yeah, Soviet Union equals bad because we were sort of raised on that propaganda. But in the 1940s, why did America feel so strongly that the Soviets were going to be a problem? This anti-communism existed long before the war. What they're doing there, the building of the Soviet Union, is scary. It's, it's counter their ideas about consumerism, about uh, free trade, about a democracy. So it was pretty easy, I would think, after the war to get buy-in from the public that this is a threat. So, Monique, I think what you're saying is at the conclusion of World War II, we had beat the Nazis and we were looking at a potential communist threat. So when it came time to evaluate whether or not to bring these German minds over, it became a question of, well, what's the lesser of two evils? Yes, exactly. Did anybody in the American government recognize at the time that we were simultaneously bringing uh, great minds over who had collaborated uh, with the Nazis, in many cases were the Nazis, to work for us, while at the same time denying citizenship and a refuge to victims, and in many cases, great minds who were victims of that regime. Because the U.S. did not have a great track record in welcoming refugees from the war. That's one of the things that is brought up as soon as this becomes public knowledge. So we were talking about Overcast and Paperclip earlier. Overcast was a secret uh, operation, but when it became 
public, it also, at the same time, it became paperclip. And paperclip then changed things dramatically because now we were talking about keeping these people here for long term and offering them U.S. citizenship. So basically a path to citizenship, right? And that is when you see protests. So on the one hand, what you're pointing out, the idea that we weren't letting refugees here and even during the war, we're not letting Jews who were obviously fleeing the Nazis into the country. That became an issue, obviously, amongst Jewish organizations, right? So there's a famous letter by Rabbi Wise writing straight to the president saying, how is this even possible? We're letting these people in at the same time that we're not letting people in who've suffered under the Nazi regime. And how does this square with our efforts of World War II and defeating this despicable enemy? And that doesn't square with democracy either. So, um, yes, there's a flare-up amongst Jewish organizations, but also amongst scientists. American scientists are saying, what are we doing here? But the problem is the pushback was, relatively speaking, did not have the same uh, power, if you will, as the elements who were trying to bring them in. With the implementation of Paperclip, the criticism dies down quite a bit. You don't hear about it for years. One of the things that I, I don't think we've talked about quite enough, or may, maybe to make all of this make sense, is this idea that we allies, this m- massive uh, group effort to defeat the Nazis, was obviously successful, but at the same time that we were winning World War II, there was an element, and not a small element, already looking ahead to a possible confrontation with the Soviets. And that was the reason that we needed these people. I don't know that we've nailed that point enough, that we were already looking ahead to a possible war and potentially a possible nuclear war. And we had to do, I guess, everything that we could to prevent the Soviets from getting this technology. Am I understanding the context correctly? Yeah, I think you are. I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people want to start the the Cold War uh, around 47, 48. But really, the tensions start almost immediately. And even though they were allies in this war, right, that was essentially a necessity. That didn't mean they liked each other. And a lot of that has to do with pre-war. This didn't come out of thin air. <laughs> so the Cold War didn't come out of nowhere. And and the fear of another kind of war, or a standoff at least, was immediate. One of the things I found really interesting about the paper clippers and this process of coming to America was the idea of denazification. Like, what even is that? I mean, that was, a, I guess, some sort of process that they were forced to undergo or they were given the opportunity to undergo. I don't even understand really what that means. Can you explain what denazification is? I like how you say given the opportunity. That's not how any German at the time would have seen that. <laughs> I'm sure. But I but I understand where you're coming from. That's really funny, actually. Um, so <laughs> denazification was something that the Allies came up with, it, and they implemented it pretty much immediately after the war, and then later they handed it off to the Germans to continue. And the idea was it, it was a way to hold people accountable at different levels, right? So yes, you had those big show trials and Nuremberg trials, but that obviously doesn't even scratch the surface, if you will, right? 
Denazification was a process by which people were asked to fill out forms that, you know, identify what organizations they had been part of, what level they had been part of. And since the Nazis were so good at keeping records, that was something verifiable. So you could look at what they had said and you could compare it to the records. The idea was um, that you could then classify people uh, into different types of offenders, levels of offenders, if you will. And based on that classification, punishment would be doled out. You know, it could be a fine, it could be limitations on on work, like certain you're not allowed to work in certain areas. It could be jail. Uh, but, you know, even that system, it sounds actually like a good idea, at least on the surface, or at least some attempt at <laughs> trying to grapple with this, right, at a whole society. But it sounds like even, but it sounds like none of these paperclip scientists and engineers really had to face any consequences. No, as did, by the way, others in Germany too. So a lot of things fell through the cracks. Let's put it that way. And Very it, polite way of putting it. Yes, <laughs> it just kind of fell through the crack. It was just a bureaucratic mishap. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, it's tragic, but at the same time, I sometimes try to put myself into that period and try to imagine, again, the bureaucratic nightmare, the 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 moral nightmare this would have been for everybody involved, trying to grapple with this. People who were there, uh, people who were themselves involved in the Nazi regime, as well as those who are trying to confront this and deal with this and asking themselves all sorts of questions about their own attitudes to the world and to others, right? Because, I mean, anti-Semitism was not born in Germany, as we know. Um, so it must have been harrowing for a lot of the people involved in trying to deal with it. Uh, but at the end of the day, yes, they didn't have to face the consequences. Right. So they left at the end of the war when Germany was basically defeated and in ruins. They came to America, which suffered obviously in the war, but didn't have the same level of suffering. So they were coming to a much more smoothly functioning society. I'm putting that in quotes because of all the social problems, whatever. And then if they went back, it was much later when Germany was recovering. So they were never part of that transformation. How did that affect their psyches, I guess? Not only did they not face consequences for their actions here, meaning they, they came to and found safe harbor, but they didn't see the firsthand, the rebuilding efforts and the struggle that went into it over there. So they kind of escaped twice. Did that affect them? Do you know? Well, I mean, I can assume <laughs> yeah. based on, on, on the way they talk about Germany or talk, uh, talked about their involvement in, in the Nazi regime. They weren't confronted with it in the same way. And they were living in a bubble, if you will, right? A lot of them, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking now specifically about the, the group in Huntsville, right? Because that's who I know best. But now we're 1950, things have shifted a lot, right? And so within that bubble, you know, they they were able to to maintain kind of their own views without being questioned. This is such a fascinating story. And I still can't believe it's actually true. And the craziest thing is, there is still so much more of it to tell. Please join Monique and me for everything to come on Paperclip as we tackle some of the figures who inspired the Amazon original series Hunters, like Werner von Braun, the Third Reich rocketeer who pioneered America's space program. 
and the Nazi doctors whose work in the United States contributed to our understanding of things like aerospace medicine and chemical warfare. Dr. Monique Laney, thank you so much. I can't wait to find out more. All right, thank you. And to see a fictional portrayal of what could have happened if Operation Paperclip had spiraled into terrifying extremes, check out Hunters, now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Paperclip is funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios. The Los Angeles Times Newsroom was not involved in the creation of this series. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Amazon Studios or the LA Times.